0: There is a very interesting debate among our sages about the nature of the shoifer that is blown on Rosh Hashanah. The Mishnah and Shraktek Rosh Hashanah, page 26B, Chavava Medbez, quotes two different opinions. One tana, one of the sages, holds... That shofar is shel yoyel poshut. The shofar to be used on Rosh Hashanah is from a mountain goat, and its horn is straight. Other sages, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Levi, hold that the shofar Rosh Hashanah is kafuf. The shofar Rosh Hashanah should be curved, not straight, but serpentine curved. And the halacha is indeed like the latter view, that the shoifah of Rosh Hashanah is indeed kafuf. Not straight, but curved. Ask the Gemara, what's the logic behind this argument? We know that you have to blow shoifah and Rosh Hashanah. But what's the logic? Why is there one view that says, it should be a straight horn from a mountain goat, where the other view is that the shofar should be winding. It should not be straight. It should be what's called kafuf pashut versus kafuf pashut. Means straight. Kafuf means winded, curved, like serpentine. What's the logic behind this dispute? So the Gemara says, I quote, and I'll translate. Rosh Hashanah 26. But my comifligi. What is the argument? Marsavar, one opinion is Rosh Hashanah, Kama de kayef inish daititfe maili. O Mar Savar, Beroish Hashanah, Kama de Poshit inish Daitit Fe Maili. One view is that on Rosh Hashanah, simplicity is the best. The more Simple, the person's mind is, the more straight it is. If the human being's perception is poshet, is straight, it's better. The other opinion says no. On Rosh Hashanah it's much better if the human being's perception is bent, is curved, is kafuf. So the physical instrument of the shoifa represents two mindsets. Two perceptions. Two different types of das. This is not a pshetl. This is what the Gemara literally says. The physical instrument of the shoifer is symbolic of two different perceptions. One is a perception that is represented by the straight horn and one is a perception that can only be reflected by the curved horn. Indeed, the halacha follows the latter opinion, which is why when you will look at a shayfar in Shul on Rosh Hashanah, or any shayfar that's used, it will usually be curved. Sometimes it's very curved, sometimes it has a little curve, but it's usually not straight. In fact, according to the Rambam, one may not even use a straight shayfar. If they use a straight shayfar, it's disqualified, you have to blow again. Although most opinions is that if you use the straight shayfar, it's fine, it's just the mitzvah, the l'chadchilah, initially we try to use a curved shoifer. But we have her two different perspectives upon which Chazal tell us, our sages tell us, and tracked it to in 13, Elu divre lekim chayim. Both views quoted in the Mishnah are the words of the living God, meaning both of them are true, both of them are authentic, even though practically we follow the latter, but even according to most opinions, if you do the former, it's still fine, excluding the Rambam, who as I said, holds that... Uh, <coughs> It needs to be keren hakvasim hakafuf, a bent horn of a sheep or of a ram. Now, what is the meaning of this? What are these two perceptions—the perception of a straight shayfer or of a bent shayfer? What does this mean? And the argument is: What is a better uh, posture on Rosh Hashanah? Is it better to have a straight posture or a bent, a curved posture? What does this mean? I mean a spiritual posture. There's another very interesting argument about Rosh Hashanah connected to another theme, but although not very disconnected. And this almost seems, it's almost like a little, it's I would say it's a humorous, it seems like a humorous argument, but it's not humorous. The people who argue about it take it very seriously. And this argument needs a little background. According to the halacha, according to the Jewish law that the rabbis deduce from various verses, we're supposed to blow on Rosh Hashanah nine blasts, nine sounds. Tkia, truah, tkia, tkia, truah, tkia, tkia, truah, tkia. That's three times three. Tkiyah trua. Tkiyah three times is nine. What tkiyah is is very clear. Tkiyah is a straight, simple blast. Two. The problem emerged with the word trua. The Torah says about Rosh Hashanah, "Yom trua yielachem." Should be a day of trua. What is trua? What is trua? There are two different interpretations for trua. One interpretation is it's a sigh. The other one is a sob. The way this debate emerged is because the word true in Hebrew is translated by the unculus, by the authoritative Aramaic translation as Yevava. True is translated as Yevava. What is Yevava? We look through the scriptures, we look through Tanakh, and we look for the word Yevava, and we have it in Judges 5, Shaft and Perikei, hey, you remember? Vatiyabev eim Sisra, the mother of Sisra was Miyavev. But what does that mean? We know that it certainly she was not singing a happy melody because she was very, very concerned about her son. She had a son, Sisera, who was one of the great generals of the army and an arch enemy of the Jewish people. He went to war, and he was not coming back. So she is groaning, she is worried, she's cautious, she's concerned about her son's fate. Of course, a mother's heart senses the truth that her son Sisera was actually killed by Yael. But at this point, the mother doesn't know this. So what does Vateyabev mean? You could explain it as a sigh, or you could interpret it as a sob. In the language of the Gemara, Mesech Rosh Hashanah, Genuchei or Yilulei Yolel. Genuchei Gonech is a sigh, or a sob. A sigh is, uh, oy OI, OI, VEI. And a sob is, uh, uh, uh. and as you can probably, I won't quit my day job, but I hope you had the ability to glean from my, uh, at least, attempts to see the difference between the shvarim and the truah. What we call the shvarim is really a sigh, repetitive sighs. Tu o oh, uh, uh, uh. that's what the shvarim is. Sigh after sigh. Tu, tu, tu. And the true is basically many sobs. Yulula Yolul. Uh, 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 uh. Which is often the difference between elderly people the way they sigh by various experiences that break them, and often children who will Sob and often not stop, especially if their mother is home and they can get away with it. So, what is trua? We know it's a yavava, but was the mother of sister a sobbing? Or was she groaning? Was she sighing? Was she krechching? In Yiddish it's called a krechts, a zifts. Or was she, hadzi gechlipet, Giyamert? You know these words? Some of you know these words? Some of you know these words very well, and some of you don't know what I'm talking about. It's fine. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. The zifts, the krecht. The word krecht sounds like a krecht, right? And and gechlipet, and geyomet, and gevein sounds like a chlippinish and a yomernish. (laughs) So... We don't know what true is, so as good Jews, we want the cake and we want to eat it too. So we're not sure, is true a, a sigh? Is true a sob? Or maybe it's a combination of both. <laughs> maybe the mother of sister did both. She sighed and she sobbed. So what do we do? We do all three. And that's why from nine sounds, <laughs> Our tkiyah Shaifa really grew and grew and grew because we don't know what trua is. So we do all three possibilities. We do tkiyah shvarim trua tkiyah three times because trua may include shvarim and trua. So we do the tkiyah, the shvarim, the trua, and the tkiyah three times. That's called tashrat tashrat tashrat. Then we do tkiyah shvarim tkiyah three times because trua may mean only a sigh. So we do tkiya shvarim tkiya three times. And then we do tkiya truah tkiya three times. Tarat. Because maybe true is only a sob, And if it's only a sob, we don't want to interject other foreign alien sounds that don't belong here. Because that would disqualify the mitzvah. So this is basically, you get the point, how the structure of shayfa works we blow Tashrat three times, Tkiya Shvarim, Truah, Tkiyah, Tashat, Tkiyah, Shvarim, Tkiya three times, Tkiya Truah, Tkiyah, three times. Granted. But now came the following question. When you do the first set, tkiya Shvarim, Truah, Tkiyah, do you take a breath between the Shvarim and the Trua? or do you not take a breath between the Shvarim and the Trua? You go, do... Breath. Now we go... To do to I go. To 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 do go, to to, to I took a breath. Even just one little breath, one ashima. Oh no, you should do to without even a breath. This, if you hear shoifu, you don't always know. The one who blows needs to know this. The people who hear, if you're very sensitive and you know the mechanic mechanisms of blowing, you can tell the difference. But often, it's such a tiny little nuanced difference, you don't hear it. This developed into a great debate between the Rishonim. The Rambam and the Ramban. Maimonides and Nachmanides. The Rambam held two... You take a breath in between. Why? The logic is explained by the commentators. It's very simple. Nobody sighs and sobs without taking a breath in the middle. You gotta take a break. First you krech, Right? First you ziv. First you're like, uh, uh. you know what I A little break? Even your child, right? First you make you first you sigh, you take a break, at least a breath, and then you sob. Since the idea of trua is to replicate the sob and the sigh. So even if we're doing both, it deserves a breath to create a break, a hefsek between the shvarim and the trua. That's the view of the Rambam. The view of the Ramban is not that way. He says you do one breath. Why one breath? Because the Torah gives it one name, trua. The Torah calls it one sound. So even though we are explaining that trua consists of two different types of notes, but the Torah includes it all in one word, trua. So even though human nature is to take a break between the sob and the sigh, but Rambam holds that when you're blowing shofar and Rosh Hashanah as the mitzvah of Shaifer. The sigh and the sob have to become linked as one cohesive, integrated sound with a continuum and no interruption. Therefore, you do one eshima, you do one breath. Shvarim. I did not take a break now. It's harder to do. Because you don't get to hop your breath, to catch your breath in between. But that's according to the Ramban, the Halach. In Shulchan Aruch, both opinions are quoted. In the laws of Tkiyash Shoefer, Erechayim Tovkov Tzadik 590, both views are quoted. What do we do practically? There's different customs that develop developed in different communities. But many of the poskim, the Beis Yosef and the Shulchan Aruch, and the later and later halachic authorities, most of them have concluded that we should do both. Therefore, you will notice that by the Tkiya Shoifer, the first time around, after Kriya HaTayra, before Musaf, known as Tkiyas MiYushiv, the first set of Tkiya Shoifer, the Bal Tekeya, the blow will not take a breath. He will follow the first, the second view that Tkiya. Should take place first. Shivarim trua together as one trua. Two different types of sounds, but without a neshima, without a breath. By the second set of tkius, which is the middle of musaf, when we dive in musaf either quietly and certainly by chazaras ashatz when the chazan repeats musaf and you take the three breaks to blow shofar, there the Baal should take a break between the shvarim and the true. What do I mean by a break? Not sit down and have a sandwich in between, but a break I mean, take at least one neshima, one breath, and then go from shvarim to truah. So basically, we embrace both opinions. That has been the custom established in most communities based on the shachanur, although there are some variations about it. So we quoted two separate arguments. Should the shoifer be straight or curved? It's too loud? Okay, so what do we do about that? Should we sob or sigh? That's the alternative. You say it's fine, but she says it's not fine. There could be different perspectives. It's loud, okay. Okay, is it any better now? Much better, wonderful. Yes. Like so we have two arguments. Should the shofar be straight or bent? Should we take a breath between the shvarim and the trua? Many might argue that these arguments seem somewhat comical or humorous, or especially the second one. I mean, does it really make a difference? And yet, as somebody once said, <coughs> poetry has laws. To write good poetry, you have to follow the right meter. But laws have poetry. It works both ways. Poets who don't have laws, often the poetry, sometimes they hit the jackpot, but often it's very difficult to uh, hold on to it. Laws that lack poetry often become dry and devoid of their inner substance and vitality. So when it comes to the bent versus straight shoifer, the Gemara says clearly, the physical instrument represents two perceptions. The Gemara clearly associates the spiritual posture to the physical shape of the shoifer. But this is also true about every single argument in Jewish law. There's a poetry in the argument. And in both views, including do we take the breath or don't we take the breath? Do we look at human nature, which dictates one to take a breath between a sob and a sigh, or the fact that the Torah defines it as one truer? One of the very powerful phrases that has been coined in the teachings of the Arizal, who was the greatest Kabbalist, the greatest mystic in Jewish history, and who revolutionized the landscape of Teres Hanister? the teachings of Kabbalah, the Arizal, whose name was Rabbeinu Yitzchak Luria, lived in Sfas only for two years. And he passed away in of Hey of Shin Lamed Bez, 1572, at the age of 34, some say at the age of 36, But during those two years, when he taught in Tzvas, he literally metamorphosized, he transformed the landscape of Jewish spirituality, Teres Hanister. He's buried in Tzvas, in the famous old cemetery in Tzvas, those graves that are dyed with the blue color. One of them is Darizal, Rabbeinu Yitzchak Luria, and his famous mikveh is very close, nearby, which is a living wellspring that continues to flow. In Darizal's writing... There is a well-known, well-known, and well-known to those initiated in his teachings, those immersed in his teachings, the concept known as Igulim, and a concept known as Yosher. Igulim literally means circles, or spheres. Yosher, from the word Yosher, is like linear lines, straight lines. Igulim and Yosher, according to the Arizal, are not just words, but they represent two dimensions of existence. Meaning, two ways in which existence can be perceived. Two ways in which our consciousness can operate. It's two different states of consciousness. One is called the consciousness of Igulim, circles or spheres, and one the consciousness of Yoisha. The difference in his own language, in Kabbalistic language, which is going to sound abstract, it won't only sound abstract, it is abstract, but we're going to de- try to decipher it somewhat, demythologized abstractions, is worlds, souls, spheres, characteristics. When they're in the world of Igulum, they're in the world of the spheres. So basically, the larger circle, the wider circle encompasses the inner circle. And that inner circle encompasses the circle inside of it. And it's a circle within a circle, like a ball, a sphere within a sphere within a sphere within a sphere, continuously, myriads and myriads and myriads of these uh, metaphoric balls or spheres, with the larger one surrounding and encompassing the inner sphere until the one on the outside, which encompasses all of them, like that. You know that uh, game that the kids like? What are they called? Babushkas? You know the Russian babushkas, you know those? Right? You have the elta, elta, elta baba, right? The greater And then you open it and then you have the baba and then you have the next baba and the next baba until you have, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's what that reason meant exactly, but uh, at least on some level let's use it as an inaccurate metaphor. And each one contains the one inside, the one inside. And this is so in their consciousness, meaning... The little sphere on the, in the inside experiences itself submerged in the larger one. And the larger one can experience itself submerged in the larger one. Yoishir is a completely different experience. Yoishir also things come down. But the line starts on top, it continues to the middle and it goes down and down and down. And the part of the line that is yosha emerges. It has its own independent autonomous space. It's not submerged inside the source. One of the differences between these two states of consciousness can be defined by what the Zayar calls Nune or Yabasha. There are fish of the sea and there are creatures of dry land. What is the difference between amphibious creatures who live in the waters and creatures who live on dry land, the difference is as follows. For a fish in the ocean, for a fish in the sea or the lake or the river, being submerged in its source of life is essential to its existence. If you take the fish out of the water, even if you have the fish float on top of the water, you put it in a boat and you say, come relax, take a nice cruise and enjoy sunset on the Atlantic, the fish dies. For it to live, it needs to be submerged, almost invisible within the water. Creatures of dry land operate on a completely different level of consciousness. We're also connected to earth. Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says in offer. Everything comes from earth. We certainly need the earth for our vitality. Without earth we can't live. Just like the fish lives from water, we live from earth. We live from the nutrients of earth, from the minerals of earth, and of course all the food that earth produces. Vegetation, produce, fruits, vegetables, plants. And even if you're eating animals, that they get nutrition, they get their vitality from the earth. We're connected to earth. There's a reason we call earth Mother Earth. But nonetheless, if you take a human being and you place that person inside the earth, what does it mean? It means that they're dead. So understand, what for a fish spells life, for a creature of land spells death. For what a creature of land spells life, for a fish would spell death. You take a fish and you say, you'll be connected to the water, but not inside the water. You can call the Chavra Kadisha. It's over. of our You'll take a person and you'll say, you're connected to earth, why don't you go inside the earth? That happens after death. For us to be alive, we could be standing on the earth, connected to the earth, but separate. In fact, modern man has invented instruments, including airplanes, where you could spend days disconnected from the earth. Completely disconnected from the earth, very remote from the earth. But even when we stand on the earth we retain an independence. Where the fish doesn't stand on top of the water, the fish is submerged in the water. There's even an opinion in Halacha, the view of Reb Shimon ben Gamliel, that fish don't constitute for mikveh. If a fish gets stuck in the woman's nails, for example, according to this view, it's not called partition between the body and the water, because the fish are considered one with the water. The halacha is not that way. We consider the fish separate from the water, but the very view, the very fact that there's such an opinion, is very significant. It tells us how the fish experience their consciousness. What does this mean in spiritual terms? In spiritual terms, this is the difference between igulim and yosher. In the world of igulim, it's like the water world. Every creature considers itself, it experiences its life, By being not only attached, but submerged in its source. The moment you disconnect it from its source, even to a degree that it experiences itself as separate, its existence ceases. The creatures of Yabash, of dry land, operate in the exact opposite level. You put them in their source and they're not visible anymore, that's death, that's burial. It's over, life is over. To live on this world means... I'm not submerged in another reality. I emerge as a separate being. Within humans and animals themselves, we have these two stages. Pregnancy and birth. In pregnancy, you tell the fetus, come on, come out, become an independent girl, an independent boy. Stop making mommy meshuggah for nine months. The fetus can't live. What allows the fetus to live is, it's submerged in the identity in the in the in the physiological body of its mo- organism of its mother, birth on the other hand represents emergence. And now biologically, if the fetus would continue to operate the way it operates in the womb, it wouldn't be able to live. If the fetus would operate outside the womb like it operates in the womb, it couldn't live for a moment. On the other hand, if it would operate within the mo- womb as it operates outside of the womb, womb, it wouldn't be able to live. It's one of the One of the wonders of creation, how that metamorphosis, you want to explain it to the Oilam, how that metamorphosis happens, you probably still marvel at it, right? 50 years later, it's amazing. How that metamorphosis happens between the fetus in the womb and the fetus outside of the womb, between the state of Igulam and the state of Yosha. What does this mean spiritually? There is a state of consciousness where an existence doesn't feel itself as an existence. The moment it feels itself as an existence, it ceases to exist. For it to exist, it needs to feel that it does not exist. It's submerged in its source. That is life. The moment you remove it, you extricate it from its source, existence ceases. If I exist, I cease to exist. That's when I have the consciousness of igulim. You take me out of the source, there's no I anymore because the very definition of the I is let's see what's going to be more powerful the mosquito or rabbi yy. You have yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Of course it was part of it. I arranged it with him before. Yeah, yeah, of course. But for a dry land creature, it's the other way around. If I'm submerged, I cease to exist. From my I to be an I, it has to be an I. So understand the paradox. In the world of Igulim, the I is the greatest obstacle to I. The moment there's an I, there's no I. For the I to live, the I must feel that there's no I. It's completely submerged in its source. In the dry land paradigm, it's the other way around. If you obliterate the eye, and you put me in a source, and you say, go in there, become submerged, I cease to exist. There's a sense of separateness. Let's now take this to the nimshal, to the spiritual reality of the universe. Everything comes from the divine. We say every morning in Davening, from Nehemiah, Ata huwa shamala wadaha ata sisas ashma'im mish ma'ashma'im wa khalswam awat wa khala shara laha ayam wa khala shabaham wa you remember that ata makhaya you give life to all to all from the reptile to the fish from the mammal to the black hole from the galaxy to the star from the human heartbeat to the blade of grass From the butterfly to the bee, to the mosquito, to the lioness, to the rhinoceros. You give life to all. Consciousness, if it's an organism that has consciousness. Design, functionality, purpose. It's physical and spiritual chemistry. It's molecular an atomic and subatomic structure essentially is a manifestation of of your chius, of your light, of your energy. But, there are two types of existences. There are those existences who don't only feel the divine energy, but they experience themselves as divine energy. In other words, they don't feel separateness. There's no Sense of self. There's no awareness of a separate consciousness. On the contrary, if you take them out of that consciousness, if you want to impose upon themselves a sense of I, it's actually a death sentence. They cease to exist. For them, the definition of existence is that my I is an extension of the divine I. But then you have a different type of existence. This is called a dry land existence. Even though it may know or not know, That God gives it vitality, but we don't feel life in that way. We feel detached. We feel autonomous. We feel independent. Some people even may be self-proclaimed atheists or agnostics. They don't even think they have a source. Even if somebody believes or understands or appreciates or is convinced that there is a divine source giving them life, but in our consciousness, I feel I and that's what makes me me. What makes me me is a certain sense of me, igulim and yosher, two states of consciousness. Now, this concept, which is a very important idea in the teachings of Kabbalah, Musar, Haskafa, Machshava, and Chassidus, is reflected also in the psychological makeup of humanity. It's a little strange, maybe sad, but funny to think that just a few decades ago, our perception about relationships was so drastically different. But I don't know if you know, in the early parts of the 20th century, many doctors, psychologists, philosophers believed that to show affection... An excessive emotion, and display a lot of nurture to a child is unhealthy. Till the 60s, I believe it was the law in Britain and in America, if somebody, God forbid, had a sick child, and they had to leave the child in the hospital, you could visit once a week for an hour. Today they set up yeshivas and in midrashim and shuls with, with donuts and pizza and the ice cream comes 24 hours a day. Not one person is there, but sometimes I go visit, there's 30, 40 people, okay? The poor hospital people go crazy, you have to give them donuts non-stop, sushi, pizza every day. I tell the chavrid, pizza, sushi, all the nurses just deliver straight 24-hour deliveries one day. Cheese danishes, even though they say we don't want, but nobody sues you for giving them a cheese danish. But then, a mother, even a mother, we're not talk, I'm not talking about cousins and aunts. talking about the mothers and fathers, an hour a week. This was a philosophy. In Germany, especially in Britain, children didn't sit at the table with parents. They said, don't kiss too much. In the morning you can give your child a handshake. That suffices. If they really, really need it at night, you can give a kiss. And even that's not l'chatchil, it's b'dyevet. And this was based on an idea. Too much nurture and display of emotional affection creates dependent people who can't develop themselves and develop a sense of confidence, independence, autonomy, and take responsibility for their life. They remain parasitic. They remain children forever. They never learn to man up or woman up. Does that work? They never learned to become macho, to become independent. Distance is the name of the game. Don't spoil, don't nurture, don't let them melt away and remain babies forever. Babies are babies, and try to get them out of that state, ASAP. This was almost a sacred idea. I don't know if you know that there was a group of of, of psychologists who fought this and they were shunned and they were uh, ostracized, and they almost lost their credentials. But this was a huge battle. Over the last few decades, there was a shift in consciousness. Not only a shift in consciousness in terms of childhood, childhood rearing, but as a result of that, it was taken to the next step, and today is probably one of the most popular models used in marriage therapy. Um, I think the one who gets most credit for this theory when it came to children was a man named uh, John... uh, Anybody remembers the name? John Balby. And the one who applied it to marriage, I think, Sue Johnson. And others, So a lot of people. And today a lot of experiments were done on this. But what happened was, there was a shift. Did I get the name right? I think so. There was a shift of consciousness. And the shift... He produced films and videos showing the impact of children being separated from their parents. And primarily he did a lot of experiments with animals. With rats, with monkey, monkeys. One of the fascinating experiments was a baby monkey, right after it's born, was taken away, it was born, was taken away from its mother. It needed to eat. It didn't have a mother to nurse it. They gave the baby monkey two options. One is to feed and get its milk from some hard, concrete object that happened to have milk. Or another object which had the tender, soft feel and touch of its mother, even though there was no food there and it was not its mother. And the baby monkey chose the latter instead of the former. And then they realized even animals are not only looking for food, and survival and shelter. They're looking for attachment. They're looking for a deep emotional connection. So the theory changed completely. And it it was reversed. The more attachment, the more the child can later become independent and develop his or her own skills. And we actually see it all the time in homes. You have a little two-year-old baby. And the two-year-old baby tears itself away from your arms. You're saying, you're so cute, you're so cute. I'm not so cute, I'm an independent person. And she or she tears yourself away from the arms and sits down to play with the puzzles, or with the games, or with the Lego pieces, or the whatever it is. And it's in completely immersed in its own game, and it's completely independent. But every few minutes it looks up to see if mommy is there, present, watching, alert, and connected. And what happens if this little independent macho baby who didn't want to be with you sees mommy is gone? It starts searching, chasing and pursuing mommy. If it sees mommy is there, it could continue being independent. In other words, when we're attached, we are nurturing a dimension in us that craves relationships. And thus, we can actually become separate. But what happens if you force that child into detachment without attachment? What happens now is, the child's identity is wounded. It's not deformed. It's not developed. It has this essential, essential void. And therefore, it craves attachment. But do you think this is only true about a two-year-old? At what age does this change? Suddenly when you're 16, or you're 17 and you graduate, suddenly all the laws of science and physics and psychology and philosophy are transformed because you became 17? Of course not. This continues throughout life. The way they explain it in secular psychology is, it's a product of evolution. Meaning, I'll just tell you what they say, evolution basically... After hundreds of millions or billions of years, according to this theory, people, or homo sapiens, (laughs) learned how to survive. And all the skills that were needed for survival were always fine-tuned, and the other ones were rejected. What skills were so important for survival? Groups being connected, being attached to each other. In a group, you had a greater chance surviving against a lion attack. Independently, you had a smaller chance surviving when you were a hunter 70,000 years ago. And so evolution programmed into our psyche that we want to be attached. So essentially, this is part of the random mistake of the entire universe that we want to be attached. But according to the Arizal, and according to the Balatanya, and according to the Maharal and according to the Shalom, it's actually much deeper. All Yosher begins with Igulim. All the universe begins with water. On Monday, there was no dry land. Everything was Igulim. The water enveloped the entire universe, not only physically, spiritually. We are all attached. We are all submerged in the single cosmic womb known as the Divine Womb. So attachment is the essential state of not only every human being, not only every mammal, not only every reptile, not only every insect, but even every blade of grass, every mineral, every grain of sand, every droplet of rain, and every pebble. It's all submerged in its source. And when that consciousness emerges, there's no differentiation, there's no detachment. There's oneness. In fact, the sense of I separate... Is a death sentence for this creature who is sensitive to the truth that the is kula in the state of igula. However, creation was God saying it's time to detach, it's time to be born, it's time to graduate from the yam to dry land, from a consciousness that is all water to a consciousness where there's dry land, where there's differentiation. In the water, we don't see differentiation. When you look at an ocean, what do you see? A waterbed. Either could be millions of creatures inside, you only see water. Malahar, it's Hashem. Kamayim layam It's a state of consciousness. On dry land, I look around this room, and I see there's a shtende, and there's a computer, and there's water, and there's an mp3, there's a pen, and even I may be existing. That's, I'm not sure. And there's you, and there's you, and there's a video camera, and there's chairs. Everything has its own separate entity. And every person has their own identity. In front of the yam, I don't see that. Not that there's no identity there, but it's all covered and enveloped by oneness, which spiritually represents a state of consciousness where the eye is attached, there's attachment. So all of existence is about the evolution, spiritual evolution that is, From attachment to detachment. So in the world of Judaism, this dual notion is essential to life. If you're not attached, you can't be detached. If we only live in the world of detachment, we don't live in the world of attachment, we're completely disconnected from who we are. Could we only live in the world of attachment? Existence means, God said, or er, let there be light. Nasa Adam, let there be a human being. It's time to be born. Even Adam and Chava themselves had this dual identity. How were Adam and Chava created initially? One. Siamese twins, dupertsuf, from the Gemara says. In other words, attached. There was never an issue Adam and Chava coming to a marriage therapist and Chava saying, I don't know where he is. He texted me three hours ago that he's coming home in three minutes. It's 11 o'clock at night. He didn't even come home and I'm asking, I can't fall asleep. And the kids are driving me crazy. Chava never had that problem. You know why? Adam was right here on the other side. He was attached. Perfect marriage. Who needs more? I'm There was never a situation. She's washing the dishes. He's sitting on the couch. Reading a newspaper. And he, Come on, help me out. If she's in the kitchen, he's in the kitchen. They had to have two sinks, because he was on this side, she's on that side. So they had to have two sinks, and they had to be parallel to each other. But there was no such a thing, Adam doing his own thing. There was no his own thing. Attached was the name of the game. Why did it happen that way? Why did it happen that way? Create Adam and create Chava. In fact, all the animals were created that way. Male horse, female horse. Male gazelle, female gazelle. Lion, lioness. Male ram and female you. Why by humans would it happen this way? Because by humans who are the responsible to synchronize the story of creation, it begins with attachment. To deny attachment is to deny the inherent fabric of civilization, of existence and of our source. And yet we emerge as independent people. Adam and Chavah don't remain connected. They become separated. Why do they become separated? Because only as separated beings can they choose their relationship rather than be coerced into their relationship. Of course, it's great to take a husband and a wife, tie them together, maybe through a surgery, and say you can't be separated. But that's a coerced relationship. So there had to be what's called a surgical decoupling Is that a good medical term? You like that? Surgical decoupling. Today we need some surgical coupling. But then they had surgical decoupling. It's called the Nesira. Adam and Chava become separate when? On Rosh Hashanah this all happens. Attachment, detachment, so that there could be a deeper attachment, so that there could be an authentic detachment. Independence, could never experience itself at the expense of interdependence. Saying, I don't need anybody in the world. I don't need my spouse. I don't need anybody. I'm macho. I'm good. It sounds macho, but it's really a denial of the true essential soul of the human being. Of course, no two people are alike. There's different natures. That is true the people who really can get on your nerves and clink to you, we know that. They need a little bit more of detachment. But those who uh, glorify detachment by denying attachment are really doing it to their own detriment. Because just like it is when we're two years old, it continues when we're 20, and when we're 30, and when we're 50, and when we're 70. And now in brackets, I'm going to say something a little sensitive. And that is, I often hear of stories that come somehow through my door, by email or in person. Sometimes there are marriages that are difficult, very challenging. And men go to therapy, husbands go to therapy, wives go to therapy, sometimes alone, sometimes together. Often, we w- some of us get advice that in life the most important thing for us to do is to develop our independence and to see ourselves as completely separate people. So a woman is in a marriage for 20 years, for 25 years, for 11 years, whatever it is, and it's a difficult marriage, it's not easy. She goes to the therapist, and the therapist or whoever she goes to sometimes, sometimes, will explain to her for the first time in her life, that she has been owned. She has been treated as a slave. She has been repressed. She has been crushed, And basically, there's now a call to this lady, up in arms, emancipation, let freedom ring, declare war against your spouse. Nobody will ever, ever, ever manipulate you or control you because it's all abuse. Now... That message, in and of itself, has some very powerful positive truth to it. Nobody should ever be subjugated, enslaved, repressed, or crushed, not allowed self expression, not allowed self actualization, and manipulated by the whims or control patterns of another person. That's true. But one second, don't destroy attachment. When you're trying to create independence, because independence that becomes separated from attachment is a wounded independence. It sounds beautiful, but it's not so beautiful. Relationships are precious. Relationships are valued. There are situations when a person is a real abuser, and people have to get out of the relationship, get out of the relationship fast. But there are situations when men are clueless. In fact, most men. <laughs> or even if not clueless, they have their own story. They have their own issues. People could be worked with. People can grow. People can develop. Nobody's perfect. Yes, sometimes a woman has to put her foot down. Sometimes she has to speak with clarity to her husband. She has to make things clear. She can't remain a pushover for the rest of her life. But not at the expense of destroying bonds that are very, very powerful and will only help her, not destroy her. And this is where every person has to develop their... This is where you have to become independent, actually. When somebody gives you advice that tells you how powerful you are at the expense of everybody else in their life, just because it feels good at the moment, because you had a difficult childhood or a difficult marriage, Don't surrender your own mind, soul, and instincts to anybody. God created you to think and to feel. And when somebody is giving you advice, and that advice somehow is betraying something very deep in you, have the courage to say, Atkan, now I'm not going to surrender my life to you. I know of a few situations where a woman was not treated so well in the marriage, so she wanted to gain independence. In that journey towards independence, she became a slave. You know to whom? To her therapist. Instead of her husband controlling her with a joystick, the therapist who became the new God controls her now with a joystick. Sometimes to the point of absurdity and complete self-detriment, the sign of a good therapist, a good rabbi, a good mentor, a good mashpia, a good psychologist, a good mechanachas, a good teacher, whatever the name you want to use is. Somebody who helps you become the person you're capable of becoming to maximize both your attachment and your independence in a journey that respects your true Presence and identity as a ray of God in this world. And when that's taken away in the name of independence, it sometimes sounds glorified, but it's sometimes very deep abuse. I've been dealing with a situation recently, which is why I'm talking about, with a a couple that have challenged relationships and have a huge family, can 11 or 12 children. And... uh, Later, recently, she discovered she discovered her independence. What type of independence? To the point that so that people stop thinking about their own greater good, their own deeper good, their own true self, and what they really, really yearn and crave, just because of that magic world word called dignity, confidence, selfhood. Now you know from this pulpit, dignity, confidence, and selfhood are encouraged. They're not denigrated. But not when it destroys the true sense of attachment. You want your children to be independent. It doesn't mean you put your child in the hospital and you don't visit them only once an hour. Only an hour once a year. That's not what independence means. On the contrary, when there's true emotional attachment, there could be detachment. Because... There is a powerful person who is whole, who doesn't have a void, craving that love, craving that fulfillment. <laughs> so therefore, we have these two dimensions. On Rosh Hashanah, the question now becomes: what shoifer should we use? A straight shoifer? Or a benchaifer. What's the difference? The difference is this very difference. The state of Igulim and the state of Yosher. What does the Gemara say? One view is, B'Rosh Hashanah called the Poshet Inish Maili. The more Poshet, the better. The other opinion is, the more bent, the better. What's this idea? What's the idea of bending, bending one's posture? What does this mean? What it means is as follows. One opinion is, a much, I would say, a very elevated, a very sublime opinion is, the word "parshut" means straight, it means simple, it also means something spread out, it also means something that is mufshat, something that has no bends, no cracks, no curves, there's a glotkite, there's a simplicity there. It's very, very straight. It's very, very simple. This view says on Rosh Hashanah, the day when the world was created, the day when Adam and Chava were created, which culminized the world creation. The focus of a person has to be on the state of Igulim. Straightening themselves out from all the bends, from all the curves, appreciating their perfect, synchronized alignment with the Divine without any separation, without any partitions, without anything that comes in between them and their source, complete attachment to the point that the eye melts away in the divine eye, and there's no separateness anymore. And hence the shoifer is perfectly straight. The outcry, the yearning, the emotional relationship is not bent or curved. It's poshets. But there's another opinion. The other opinion looks at the human being as an independent creature. Not the sea level, but the dry land level. Not igulin, but yosher. Here there is a sense of independence. And when there is a sense of independence and detachment, now the relationship is a little bit of a different relationship. Now the relationship often necessitates there should be a kafaf. I need to bend my posture, curve my mind, develop my perception to appreciate the other who is not me. In the first stage, there's no distinction. There's complete oneness. There's no you and I. In the latter consciousness, there is you and there's I. We're different. We're independent. And now, I have to appreciate you. You have to appreciate me. They tell a story... About the Rav of Lodge, Lodge was a city, is a city in Poland. Rabbi LeYo Chaim Meisel of Lodge was a great man, a great rabbi, a great sage. It was winter time in Lodge. A winter in uh, Poland could be cold, and the poor who lived often in broken huts and homes froze. So the Lodge of Leyo Chayyim Eisel, went to a very affluent man to ask him for a nice donation to be able to purchase lots of lumber to be able to distribute among the poor to ignite fires in their homes at night. He goes to the home of a very, very wealthy individual. He knocks on the door. The man's servant comes out and says, oh, The Rav of Lodge, please come in. He says, Ask the balabas, the master, please come out, I would like to speak to him. He says, sure. He comes outside. He says, Rebbe, what a schus. you come to my home. How can I help you? Please come in, it's so cold, I'll give you a cup of tea. He says, no, 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 I don't want to disturb you. And he starts describing to him the harsh conditions of the Polish winter. Now the guy just came out to the house to see who it is. So he came out, short sleeves, without a jacket, without a kapota, without a farik, without certainly without a coat, without anything, Right? At least at the lodger was dressed. He was outside, and uh, he was a very, he's very, very well respected. So he says, after a few minutes, Rebbe, Rebbe, come in. He says, No, no, I don't want to disturb you. And he goes on to discuss the fate of the poor. And it's been a difficult winter, and there's no money, and there's no wood. After fifteen minutes of explaining and talking, he's like, Rebbe, please, please, come in. He says, No, 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 I'm not here to disturb you. I don't want to come into your house. He keeps him out there until the poor man wealthy man, but now he was poor, was shivering, shivering, shivering from cold. And as he's explaining to him the fate of children and women and men in this cold, he managed to get from him an enormous pledge of money to be able to cover the lumber. Great. He goes in to get the the pledge or the star, whatever he gave him, the ruble. And he says, Rebbe, I have one question. Why did you refuse my offers to come inside, take a... See, he says, if this conversation would have happened inside, I wouldn't get from you a ruble. I wouldn't get from you, if it was inside. You were outside, you felt the cold, you understood what I was talking about, you experienced it, you can empathize, not only sympathize remotely, but feel what they're going through. People give in a different fashion. What does it mean to bend your posture in a relationship? What does it mean? It means two things. Number one, the ability for me to be able to see the world from your perspective. The ability for me to be able to understand your emotions, your needs, your trigger points, your challenges, your pain, maybe your trauma. It may not be my experience, but it's your experience. If I don't understand that experience, how can I ever bend my posture? But it means also something else, which is sometimes even more difficult, especially for some of us in this room. And that is, for me to communicate to the other person my deepest pain and needs, which makes me very, very vulnerable, and demonstrates how much attachment I really need when maybe most of my life I was trying to detach because that was the only way I could be safe. But really on a deep level, I'm not better off than that monkey who desperately looks to any attachment they can get. I think I told you once there was a famous actor who won lots of prizes. His name was Zero Mustel. Zero Mustel, his name was not Zero. His name was Shmuel Yoel. You ever heard that name, Shmuel Yoel? He grew up in the Bronx, family of eight, an observant family. He left Yiddishkeit, went on his own path. And I once read an interview. They asked him, "Why did who gave you the name Zero? I mean, it's an interesting name to give your child, no? Zero. But like the Shteibel operas had a song, a boy named Zlata, which probably comes from a boy named Sue. Who gives their child the name Zero? So he said, no, this wasn't given to me. It was my own name. I needed an English name. I chose zero. Why? He said when he was a child, he was told by somebody very close to him, yayl, du bist agarnisht. Und du bist You're a nobody. You're a zero, and you will remain a zero. He said, I wanted to give him nachas and live up to his expectations. So when I needed a name, the appropriate name for me was zero mustel, Zero Shmuel yoel became zero. Which taught me that if you're not going to make your child feel special, somebody else will. If I don't nurture the attachment they need, they're going to find attachment. The question is to what? And to whom? And at what price? The need for attachment never leaves us because we are attached. <laughs> We're attached. We come from the water, we come from one source. We're attached. We're also detached. And we live in the tension between those two identities and some of us try to escape here and some of us try to escape there. Some of us try to escape to the world of detachment. We become alone. Very, very independent to our own detriment. Because we need attachment. And some of us become exclusively attached. Either codependent or completely surrender all sense of self. Or clingy because we don't believe in our ability to develop ourselves as human beings. But Judaism... What's the word? Uh... straddles, straddles the tiny, narrow bridge. Kolo olam kulo geshet sar which your 20-year-olds like singing for a few months. The whole world is a narrow bridge, when they come back from Israel, yeah? And we straddle that bridge. The Yerushalmi says it's a very narrow bridge. On one side is ice, on one side is fire. If I go to one side, the right... I burn up. And if I go to the other side, I freeze. On one side, I don't become emotional. I lose myself in emotion. I become a fireball. And on the other side, I freeze. I become emotionless, numb. A tree feels, a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. I become a rock. I feel no pain. I become an island. Islands don't cry. But is that true? Islands don't cry. Islands, not only do they cry, they live in the midst of oceans of tears. They cry much more than everybody else. And they wait for the person to come from the ocean onto the island and get a little feeling of the wet water. So in the first consciousness, on Rosh Hashanah, Hold the Pashat inish daitat fei. Straighten out your das. Align it with the divine. No differentiation, no distinction. It's called the highest level of unity. Adam and Chavah are one. And then there is no. On Rosh Hashanah, you can't expect from everybody to be able to experience that oneness. I experience differentiation and I have to bend my posture. That's vulnerable. I have to ask myself, what does the world look like from your perspective? I have to bend my posture. I have to turn my head. Go to your side. Put on your glasses. Put on your lenses. See your perspective. You remember the story about the six and the nine? You never saw? It was once in Shul, the number six and number nine got into a huge machleikas. One screamed, I'm a six. And the other one screamed, I'm a nine. And they went to the rabbi. It was a third world war. And the rabbi says, depends which side you're standing on. But it's true in every area of life. I have to bend my posture. But I have to bend my posture not only to see things from your perspective. I also have to bend my posture to explain to you my perspective. My attachment needs. My deep pain my vulnerability, the fact that your comment was so hurtful to me because I'm not a macho independent rock who feels no pain and island doesn't cry. That's not the case. I'm a human being who is in a relationship and therefore it triggered me, it touched me, and, I, and let's work it through. And with that respect that we give each other of the kalman, the koth of inish day titzve, According to this opinion, you reach the true experience of Rosh Hashanah. where in the world of differentiation and distinctiveness. You can create a relationship even though there is an element of pain in acknowledging the other and seeing how clueless I was and pain in acknowledging the self and displaying my true vulnerabilities and my true needs. On a spiritual level, even on a deeper spiritual level, what does this mean? This means that sometimes my mind will not be completely aligned with the truth. Sometimes my mind will be completely disaligned. And I will have to be able to bend and curve my shoifer. And it's not easy to be able to acknowledge the fact that there is pain, and so much pain, that I have to be able to look at and say, despite all of this, these are my convictions and values and this is how I'm going to behave. It's very difficult. Sometimes I want complete identification with everything I believe in and everything I do. But what happens when there are voices in me that are screaming the opposite? Sometimes in a relationship, there is a difficulty and there's a voice in you that says, this marriage is not going to last. And then you have to be able to look at it and say, it's my pain speaking. Have compassion for it and yet not allow it to rule my entire life and become the beginning, the middle and the end of the story. That takes bending that takes kfiyah, it's called iskafiyah. In every person's life, sometimes my nature is dictating a certain behavior, I have a certain addiction or inclination or instinct. It's very, very powerful. There's no alignment. I'm really not in the mood of doing the right thing. I'm I'm in the mood of doing the wrong thing. I'm in the mood of doing every behavior that is completely destructive. And I have to be able to look at myself and say, it's time to curve your posture. And you know in exercise, in Pilates or yoga or stretches, curving allows muscles that are aching to be able to heal. It allows the human organism to be able to reinvent itself. It allows the person to be able to say, there is more energy and strength in me than I thought. It would be nice if I could just remain straight my whole life, not stretch a muscle. But I live in a world where often some parts of my body are compromised, and then I have to do a kfiyah. I have to stretch, I have to curve. I have to subdue. Not because I want to subdue, because I want to align. But how do you align differences? How do you align two people who are so different? How do you align the human being and God? You align by understanding that you have to stretch. And you have to curve, and bending is part of that experience, part of that process. Which, by the way, and I'm not going to get into this because this is a whole sugya, from a deeper spiritual and psychological level, this is one of the secrets of the concept that eluded many, many people, and people, some people still find it strange. What is the power in Jewish life of the mikveh? Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, went to the mikveh five times. For a person to convert to Judaism, they go to the mikveh. Some people, especially in Hasidic circles, they go to the mikveh every day, or Shabbos and Yom Tov. And then there's, of course, the biblical mitzvah of the mikveh, the way it relates to a marriage, and intimacy. What is this mikveh? So in olden days, there was the misconception that it has to do with dirt and hygiene, but it's contrary, halacha demands cleanliness before. The concept is, when I go into a bath of water, a natural bath of water, I stay under the water, I can't exist. I'm going into a state of igulin. I'm going into a state of connection. Underwater, my I can't be separate. And that's why I come right out. Because if you stay there for too long, unfortunately, it's the end of I. For the I to exist, I have to come out of the water. In the water, I'm submerged. There's no me anymore. Ah! All relationships must be preceded by that sense of complete attachment. Because if relationships don't acknowledge the attachment dimension of a couple, ultimately their independence will be compromised. So when I go into the mikveh, I submerge. In other words, my eye surrenders to the water. Now I emerge as a separate person. Now the halacha encourages a relationship, physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, but a relationship that doesn't compromise individuality. A relationship that incorporates the individual dimensions of each person, because you recall your attachment. You recall the fact that we come from a place of water. We come from a place where the I is part of a larger I. Where my eye, when it's divorced from everybody else, really doesn't have existence. When it's in the water, it exists. And yet, we don't live in the water. <laughs> we live outside of the water. There's I and there is you. You heard to me what the Katzke Rebbe said. <speaking in Hebrew> Clear? if I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I I am not I and you are not you but if I am I because I am I and you are you because you are you then I am I and you are you and now we can begin to shmuz this is a very profound declaration I can't remain in a mikveh for the rest of my life <laughs> I can't be there I'm not a fish I'm not a fish Rav Shimon Ba was 13 years in a cave what does that represent? 13 years he was submerged in the source of life with his son the author of the Zohar but we don't live in caves we live on top of the earth I can't live in the source of life even though I am living in the source of life but in my consciousness I acknowledge and I must feel separate and relate to Hashem from the state of separateness How do I relate to Hashem from the state of separateness? If God wanted me to relate to Him not from a state of separateness, He would have kept me in the mikveh. (laughs) He took us out of the mikveh. That was the Tuesday of creation. Meaning, part of the relationship is that I'm relating to somebody who is not me. Your otherness is essential to the relationship. It's vital, it's not a mistake. It's vital. This is where bending postures happens. This is where curving postures happens. It's the beauty of connecting two things that are separate. If there was only the divine, there would be no Rosh Hashanah. The whole Rosh Hashanah is that God suppressed His infinity to create space for finiteness. So what do we do on Rosh Hashanah? We suppress our finiteness to create space for infinity. We curve our finiteness to create space for infinity just as He curved His infinity to create space for finiteness. In every relationship, it works that way, relative to that relationship. So we emerge from the water, now we can enter into a relationship that acknowledges the oneness, and understands that the oneness has to be translated within differentiation, which practically means, I need to be able to share with you my true attachment needs, you have to be able to share with me your true attachment needs, so from a state of separateness, we can bond and become a support for each other, where instead of being lonely and independent, detached as the island of the rock, we become independent people who have the power and the support of the oneness that informs the separateness. So that the two merge so in the higher state of reality of course for clear up your das spread it out making straight no curves, no bends that's a higher level of unity but the halacha follows the lower level of unity meaning we live in a world of separateness and a relationship with Hashem means relating to Him with all of me with my full presence with all parts of me without the need to mutilate and to cut away certain dimensions of me that are separate separateness is essential to the relationship it's not an obstacle to the relationship just like in a marriage, the fact that somebody is different, this is what makes their attachment needs unique and therefore there is a unique magic that is created because if you don't need me if you don't need me so then (laughs) the attachment becomes futile, because basically all you're doing is, you're doing something for me, you don't need me, so basically I'm extra in your life So if I'm extra in your life, there's complete aloneness. If somebody feels completely not needed, that means my presence adds absolutely nothing to you. So I need you. So I become completely attached, but you don't need me. So what does that do to a person? What that does to a person is, it destroys their independence, their sense of self. My entire value is... You don't need me. I don't give anything to you. I might as not exist. It's all, only I need you. So what happens is, this is attachment without independence. So Kevayach, it begins with Hashem. If all existence would just be, I need Hashem, I need Hashem, I need Hashem. But that's it. We only have half of Yiddish guy. There's another half of Yiddish guy. God needs you. But what can you give God that He doesn't have? The answer is, that you're separate. You're independent. You're a creature of earth. You have an identity. You're finite. God is infinite. What can I give God? (laughs) My contribution is my finiteness. My humanness. The fact that I make mistakes. The fact that I grow. Infinity can't grow. Infinity is perfect. (laughs) Finiteness grows. Humans grow. Hashem experiences kevayachol. Growth. By creating imperfect people, perfection can grow. Perfection is perfect, so that's what our independence contributes. If you mutilate your humanness, if you mutilate your ungodliness, the relationship is destroyed. Because what happens is, basically, I'm not needed. My whole existence as an independent creature was a mistake. That's the Scheifer kafuf. That's the beauty. The beauty of the kafuf. Now come back. To the breaths, you remember the breaths. So there's two ways of describing the shayfer. One is a breath between the shvarim and the trua, and one is no breath between the shvarim and the trua. The opinion that says no breath between the shvarim and the trua says it's not natural. Between a sob and a saw, you take a breath, but this is not about natural trua. The Torah says the word trua; it's one word, and therefore we're loyal to that word. That's the straight shayfer. If you say, we emulate human nature, the human condition is you take a breath. Between the shvarim and the shvarim, we take a breath. So the question is, what does the shoifer call on us? Does it call on us to retain the characteristics of the human being who takes a sob and then a break and then a sigh and that's how we do it? Or the shoifer challenges us for transcendence, pshitus simplicity, to go to an undefined space where there's complete oneness, where there's no differentiation. And here we don't take a breath because even though it's so different the sounds, it's really one truer. Or take it even a step deeper. What's the difference between sighing and sobbing? Usually adults, older people, sigh more than they sob. People sit and they oi, oi, <sighs> right? You get the WhatsApp, you get the text, you whatever it is, your daughter calls you. Oi, oi. Kids come home from school. Oh, yeah. Why are you ready? Now you just we for the rest of our lives. They say there were three women, three elderly Jewish women walking on Palm Beach. Well, not this season, but when Palm Beach is nice. And uh, one says, and the other one says, and the other one says, the fourth one says, we made up, we're not talking about the kids today. Children, on the other hand, sob. (laughs) So now look at the difference in Shvarim and Shrua. Sobbing is the state of attachment. Sighing is the state of more detachment. Children feel attached. They want to be attached. They don't want to go independent. Children like nurture of Tati and Mami, healthy children. That's the sob. The sob, when people cry... It basically represents how much we need attachment, comfort, solace. The sigh is very different. The sigh could sometimes be mistaken as a certain sense of, I gave up on the world. It's like, here we go again, just stab me again, and don't forget to twirl the knife while you're at it. Not every sigh, but a sigh has that sense of a certain maturity, maybe sometimes a little despair, a little cynicism, a little like, I've been around the block nine times. Do we take a breath between the two? One is our attachment and one is our detachment. One is the sob, one is the sigh. One is childhood, one is adulthood. One view says it's one breath. No distinction between the two. One trua. The other view says absolutely not. It's a bent shaifer. There is distinction. There is the sense of attachment, but then there's the sense of independence, and there's a breath that we take between the two. They're not the same experience because we don't feel that oneness. Our challenge is to be able to create oneness from a space of separateness. So I'll conclude with this story. The Tzemach Tzedek was one of the great spiritual masters. Lost his mother at a very young age. He was two years old and his mother, her name was Rebetzin She was a daughter of the Balatanya, passed away. The circumstances were tragic. She gave away her life for her father. She felt that her father was going to pass away. And she gave her life for her father with the condition that he raises her orphan. She passed away a day after Rosh Hashanah. And the Balatanya, known as Dalti Rebbe, took him to Tzermach and raised him as a child. So he was very close to him. He was like his father figure and his mother figure. And uh, the Tzermach was a little baby, Mama Fresh Yassim, he was two or three years old. And he was sitting on his Zayda's lap, the Balatanya's lap, Dalti Rebbe's lap. And he was, uh, if you know the picture of the Balatanya, the painting, he had a beautiful, uh, glorious beard. So he was... Uh, he was uh, stroking his Zayda's beard, and he was saying, Zaida, Zayda, Zayda, just dear man, Zayda, grandpa, grandpa. And the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, looks at him and says, Das is Nish the Zayda, das is the beard from the Zayda. Who is the Zayda? This is not your Zayda, this is the beard of your Zayda. Where is your Zayda? So he starts caressing his grandfather's cheeks, and he says, Zayda, Zayda. He says, "This is the Zayda. This is the Bekelach von the Zayda. These are the cheeks of the Zayda. Who is the Zayda?" So he touches, he caresses his eyes. He says, "Ah, this is the Zayda. He this is the Oigelach from the Zayda. These are the eyes of your grandfather.'" And so he's touching around various parts of his body, and he's saying, "Here's the grandfather." And the Balatani says, "This is not your grandfather. This is this limb. This, but where is your Zayda? Where is your grandfather?" And the little boy is so-called stumped. He has no answer and he stops and as little children. He gets off the lap and it's time for independence, right? <laughs> it's time to go away and to go find yourself and he goes to play. And the Balatanya, the Rebbe goes back to his whatever he was doing, learning probably, or writing, whatever he was doing. And suddenly, he hears a scream. Ah! The a Tzedek got his finger, supposedly, stuck <laughs> Stuck in the door, like the door slammed on the finger, or so it seemed from his position. So he gives a scream, ah! So the bala tanya dal jumps up and runs over. What's What happened? Ah, dosa the zayda. Ah, that's my grandfather. He set up this whole ambush. <laughs> he got his, his finger stuck between the door, and the run, the rush. Ah, dosa the zayda. That's the attachment. Where do you attach? It's not the beard, it's not the lips, it's not the kiss, it's not the eyes, it's the etze ha it's, it's the, the core of the soul is connected. The core of the soul, it's not articulated in this detail or that detail. It's an essential connection. But the way, the way to manifest that relationship, it comes through details, it comes through experiences. And part of that experience is the bent shayfer of Rosh Hashanah, which is why the Rambam, who holds that you take a breath between Shvarim and holds you can't even use a straight shoifer. You have to use a curved shoifer, because Rosh Hashanah pays tribute, not to the fact that man ceases to be man and becomes God, but to the fact that the human being, with his or her humanness, with his or her personality, with his or her identity and all aspects of it, has the courage to be able to connect in a world that could often seem us so disconnected, have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net/donate.